Podcast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. Joel Martin, for those who didn't hear your first appearance on the Powercast last year, can you kind of take us back to how you got involved in this crazy business? You have to be more specific. Do you mean broadcasting or the paranormal? Well, let's go for the paranormal. Broadcasting uh, has its own craziness that I dare not so refer true. to. Uh, the paranormal actually began because I was uh, hosting a late back talk show, and the talk show was on a rock and roll station. Now, those are supposed to be not compatible, to put it politely. You just don't find talk shows on rock stations now, nor did you in the 1970s, or I guess about the early 70s. What happened was that I had a major problem. The problem was I wanted to get good ratings, and I'm trying to work out in my head what ideas and what subjects to do, because I have uh, to somehow attract a young adult audience, which is even more ridiculous for a talk show. And so here I am trying to figure all of this out, and there was a, a, a teenager who worked at the radio station, a very lovely girl who was a disc jockey, and we got along really well, she's a very, very nice girl, Kathy, came to me one day and said, hey, Joel, why don't you try doing some of those subjects that have to do with um, psychic phenomena? And I said, uh, excuse me? You know, the truth is I did not even know what she was talking about. And she said, you know, ESP, mental telepathy. And I said, oh, even that, that joke with a fortune telling? Oh, I don't believe that baloney. Good God. She said, it doesn't matter what you believe in. What matters is that you get the ratings. I said, really, you think there's an audience for it? She said, sure. In fact, I'll get you your first two guests on the subject. And she did. A husband and wife who were both psychics. And, uh, frankly, the audience response was very, very good. And uh, then there was a story in the newspaper about somebody who saw a UFO on eastern Long Island and a couple of others over the New York, uh, you know, Manhattan, the five boroughs area. And, uh... I got the people who were involved in those, and I had them on the air, and the response was great. And I said, whoa, I think I've caught on something here, and I, I think I found the hook, if you will. And so what I would do is one night have on something about psychic phenomena, and the next night something about uh, a controversy that had to do with kids, whether it was legalizing marijuana or how to get us out of uh, the war or whatever it might be, gay, whites, any, anything that was considered extremely controversial, then funny that the same subjects that are controversial now come to think of it, uh, but that so much has not changed. So I uh, really was not interested in the subject, frankly. I was raised, uh, born and raised in New York City, and I really can drive a subway train. That's not a, a joke. I understand that, but psychics I knew nothing about. My real problem at the time is that I was trying to live through living in the city and riding subways in the middle of the night. That was my serious problem. Subways were the problem, not psychics. So, And I didn't know anything about it at all. What about psychic subways? <laughs> psychic subways, I could do the subway part. The psychic part, nothing. I mean, I, as I tell you, you know, people say, were you a skeptic? I wasn't a skeptic because you have to know something about it to be a skeptic. I, I, I wasn't even up to being a skeptic. I mean, I could tell you everywhere to go around New York, I can do Philadelphia, Boston, you know, a bunch of major cities that I lived in Washington. But, I mean, if you were to ask me about a psychic, I had no idea. The first time I did a show about reincarnation, somebody used the word karma. And I looked at some old notes a couple of years later after that, and I, I had spelt it the way you spell Carmel, like the candy. I had no idea what they were talking about. I, not a word. So what I did is I, I started to learn on the job, so to speak, okay? And so throughout the 1970s, basically, I was totally disinterested. I mean, apathy doesn't even describe it. All I cared about was getting 
a good show, and the ratings. The three most important things were ratings, ratings, and ratings. So if somebody had UFOs to talk about or said they had been Cleopatra in a past life or they were psychic and they could, you know, read my mind, fine. You got a good show and you got me a big audience. That's what counted. Then I had what they called, you know, you know, the epiphany. You know, you have, you have that moment when you really change. I mean, where everything in your life suddenly stops and there's that moment when everything that happens before and everything that happens after is marked by that particular event. And that event was in 1980. I met George Anderson, and I was told by my production assistant, a, a young woman who had just lost her sight uh, after high school from juvenile diabetes, that there's a guy in the neighborhood, is the way she worded it, who speaks to dead people. And I said, oh, my God, you've lost your sight. Now you've lost your mind, you poor girl. Uh, literally, that was the conversation we had. And, you know, we were able to kind of uh, joke and uh, treat the disability and the you know, so-called in a way that, uh, you know, never made it too morbid. And she said, no, just shut up for a moment and listen to me. I went to him for a reading, and he knew things that were so confidential and so secret and names in the family and, and information that it was impossible impossible for him to know. I said, frankly, I really don't believe it, but if you say so, okay, what do you want me to do? She said, well, Mr. Big Shot Open-Mindedness, because that was on the air. I used to say, I'm open-minded. Hey, I'm open-minded. Yeah, right. And then I'd scream at whoever was there. Yeah, you're a psychic pal? All right. Tell me what color my socks are. At, the, <laughs> at least you, you know, tried. At least you tried to find out. <laughs> well, you know, well, she, she, that, that was it. But uh, she's serious. I mean, she's just, She's really, really uh, taking this seriously. She insisted I meet him. Make a long story short, I did. And the first time I met him, this was in the spring of 1980. This is now only several months after my former wife was killed. She was struck by a car and killed by some moron who was driving with drugs in him. That's a whole other show. It was devastating. Now, I keep my private life private and my professional life professional. So there would be nobody who would really know the details of my private life, her mannerisms, what she looked like. She was a nurse, just, you know, graduated nursing school just then. And uh, nobody would know anything about our lives. Although we did not live together, we were very, very close. He started to give me details about her that were just unbelievable. And then he starts to talk about a man named Solomon, he says. No, first he says Saul. And I say, no, Saul, I don't think so. He says, he's saying, no, wait a minute, he's saying, oh, he's saying Solomon, Solomon. And now I am smart enough by this, you know, after nearly 10 years of this to, to know you don't give verbal cues or clues. You don't let any expression on your face show. You don't feed information to a psychic or a medium because he allegedly can talk to the spirits or the souls of people who've passed on. And any clue that I give him is something he can work from. So I'm sitting there, you know, like a, like a, a rock. I just sit there quite concrete. And I knew how to, to do that, honestly, from, from living in the city. I mean, I, I knew how to sit totally silent and expressionless. He starts to tell me about Solomon. Now, Solomon... Was Solomon your father? He says, I said, no. He said, well, let me listen closely. And he's listening to something in his head. I have no idea what. He says, oh, I understand. It's your grandfather. And with that, he starts drawing Jewish stars on a pad in front of him. He has a magic marker and a, a, a yellow-lined legal pad, one of those long pads. And he said, why does he keep showing me Jewish stars? Was he very traditional? Now, George should not even have known that I had been raised in a family that has as its descendancy, its, its ancestry, at least nine generations of rabbis. 
Orthodox rabbis. He knew that. And he knew Solomon. And I tried to trick him for a reason. I said, you mean Saul? He says, no, 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 no. You can't say Saul. You can't say that. I said, why not? Because he says, nobody ever called him Saul. It's Solomon. And that was true. Out of respect, nobody ever called my grandfather Saul. He was always Solomon. Now, that's the kind of detail that somebody who's a, a faker doesn't know. And then he proceeds to tell me about the accident that killed my uh, former wife. And in doing so, he gives me indications and examples. This is in a private. He and I are doing this, although I take it for later consumption for myself. He starts to tell me the nature of the accident and where the injuries were. Now, this is important. I could not acknowledge. I, there was no way I could possibly acknowledge him because I was too upset. Uh, I'd be really traumatized by it. It happened so suddenly and so horribly, and she was so young. I did not want to know where the injuries were. So that would have to exclude mental telepathy or mind reading because he knew details of that accident that I could not acknowledge at the time. I simply didn't know. And then he continues, and the last major thing he does, in addition to giving me some parental advice for the future, which, frankly, I didn't take. I'm no disciplinarian. I'm just the worst at it. I'm way too liberal and permissive as a parent. I never could get the hang of that stuff. My wife was much, much better at it. But he starts to tell me what she looks like. And he says she's standing behind me. And like an idiot, I turn around to look. Obviously, I don't see anything, but he must have because he described her exactly. There's a, a, a petite girl standing behind you. She's small. She's thin. She has blonde hair. She's very pretty. And now, oh, wait, why is she doing that? This is George speaking to me. I said, doing what? She's shaking her finger as if she'd be shaking her finger at a, 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 a baby, you know, you to a toddler. I said, oh, geez, stop, stop, stop. And I, I literally, I, I yelled at him that way because all of a sudden I realized this was not what I was used to seeing. Something was going on here above and beyond what you would expect from a, quote, psychic or medium. Now, what did the, the, the wagging figure mean? It meant that... The girl I married, I, I don't know how to put this politely, she thought I was mentally about two years old. I guess that's the only way to say it. And whenever she'd get annoyed at me, which can be anywhere from 18 to 200 times in a day, depending on how long a day was, she would wag her finger. You'll never grow up. You'll never grow up. And then she'd wag her finger. Will you have a time? You'll never grow up. Now, how the heck would he know a mannerism like that? Where in God's name would he know a particular, specific mannerism that only we knew? And I was so shaken by it, I stopped him at that point. But you know what? Women do that, I think. <laughs> well, yeah, well, well, actually, I had a couple who uh, were more violent in my life. I, maybe so. She's the, only, she's the only one I've ever known who did that to my face directly that way. They might, but not usually to the husband. I mean, to the baby, to the kid, sure. He knew too many details. He knew where the injuries were, something I did not know. He knew details about my grandfather. Oh, and he went as far as to tell me, your grandfather is saying he was very proud of you until your confirmation. In other words, until you were bar mitzvah at 13. But then you disappointed him. Does that make sense? And I'm thinking, and I said, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, uh, okay. I, all I said to George was, okay. Why did I disappoint him? And he told me the truth. I started to date, how do you put this, non-Jewish girls. <laughs> it was as simple as that. <laughs> I married a Catholic girl. I dated Catholic girls, and I married one. And uh, they would be Italian, they could be Spanish, they could be anything, but they were always Catholic. It was the nature of the neighborhood and where we lived in the city. 
He knew those kind of details, and it made no sense that he should have. And so you can probably say, well, you can guess at anything. He may have known that you were from a family of, of, of rabbis. No, I don't know how. He may have known that, that everybody wags a finger. Well, no, they all really don't. He may have known that the injuries were to her head and the side of her face. Well, maybe, but not everybody's injuries are there. So, I mean, you can play the game of, you know, probabilities. What's guesswork and what isn't? Well, I invited him back is the point, and I continued to test him privately. And when we met again the next week, I uh, asked a friend of mine to just stand by for a phone call. I said, I need to use you for an experiment that I would not tell him anything other than that. And he was a parapsychologist, uh, Stephen Kaplan, but a very, very, very skeptical one. I mean, cynical is a better word, probably. He loved the subject. It's, it's that old saying, I love humanity. It's people I hate. With him, it was the paranormal he loved. It was just psychics he hated. That, it was that simple with him. He just, all, he thought they were all, you know, for the most part, phonies. And, uh, he was very severe in anything he would say at his criticism. Well, I put them on the phone, and all I told Steve to say was, without introducing his name, on the, on the phone, from where Steve was in the city at the time, yes or no is all you can do, because you know, you've got to give him some response. I need to hear it. Yeah, that was all. Now, George did not guess. He proceeds to tell him about an uncle, an uncle who he ran to, whose name was Jack, whenever he had problems at home where he was abused. And it was a sad story, and frankly, I was just mortified by his childhood, things I had never heard, and names that were correct. All right, session's completed. We've done it for that week. Now this is week two. That night I called Stephen at home and I asked him, what do you think? And he says, well, that was a pretty good trick, Martin. I said, well, what trick? I hate I being called a liar when I'm telling the truth. I, I, I despise that. If I'm telling somebody the truth, I'm, I'm being really honest. I'm not, I'm not going to lie about it. And he tells me that I must have told him all of that information. And I started to, to yell at him. I screamed at him. I said, I haven't knew anything about your childhood for heaven's sake. I didn't know you had an Uncle Jack. I didn't know anything about abuse. I had my own problems with that. I didn't pay any attention to, to, to your stories, number one. And number two, you never told me. And he got very quiet on the phone. And Stephen said, you know, that's right. I never did, did I? And he said, holy sugar, just a, one of his favorite expressions. I didn't even know sugar was holy, but that was always his, that was his, his, uh, his way of cleaning up the language, I suppose. Uh, that was holy very good. Sugar. Hey, yeah, holy sugar. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. Hi, Gene and Dave. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Here's our special offer. Because we love Gene and Dave and the Paracast, we are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for 1995, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for 1999. Just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five, or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, 
Marina del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R E Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO-6242. Leave me a message. I will call you back. Or if I'm in the office, I'll pick up and just say, Hi, I'm a friend of Jeans and Dave's. I listen to the Paracast. Here's my special offer, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five. And that's how you do it. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, Send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast. With Jesus and Ricky David Bandy. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast <laughs> with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. And we have Joel Martin, paranormal researcher, radio talk show host, joining us with some incredible details about the things that happened to you when you just tried to do it for the dollar. And suddenly you learned otherwise. Yeah, I did. I really did. And every week it was getting worse and worse. And when I say worse, I mean he was providing more details to more people and people that he couldn't possibly have known. And Stephen said, I think you, you, you've got something there that he said, I cannot explain. And the next week I asked another friend. Now I asked the third week a friend of mine who was an engineer. And this is an engineer whose hero in life was Mr. Spock from Star Trek. That, right. sir, Joel, is not Joel, logical. Before, you know what, Joel, Joel, here's the thing. I know that... In talking about this, we're repeating a lot of the stories that we heard on the first time you were on the show. Mm-hmm. That, there's nothing wrong with that. But let's cut to the chase about George. Because well, look, look, cutting to the no, chase, me, no, he needed well, too, too many details about too many people. No, 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 I, I understand all that. No, no, no I, yeah. I, listen, I, I had read years ago the books you wrote about George, We Don't mm-hmm. Die, and Follow Up. And I'd read mm-hmm. those many years ago. I was very intrigued by them. Mm-hmm. Because, quite frankly, I think most of the mediums that are out there promoting themselves as having special abilities simply don't, and they're in it for the money. Now, it looked like George Anderson early on was not that person. But no, he was not. No, he was. He what, was so atypical. It was. Well, what, what happened to him? What? So this is a, a common thread we see in the in the realm of paranormal activity. We yeah. see someone who comes forward who seems to have some genuine abilities. Oh, he had genuine abilities. Still does. Well, no, no, no. Yeah, right. No, no question there. But then what happens? It seems that people lose their minds at some point. If you go to George's website, what you find yeah. is that he gets twelve hundred bucks an hour. Is that um, what it is? I I don't yeah, I don't look and I don't want to know. Yeah, but all right. Well, but like, what, happened, getting... what happens to this guy? What happened to Frank? Frankly, I think it's not my place to defend him, nor you know, I, I can I can either That's defend nor really criticize. But in, in an opinion, my opinion is probably what happens to people 
who are successful in any line of work, they'll go with whatever the market will bear. I mean, if you can tell me why an idiot who plays baseball is getting, you know, 250 million gazillion billion dollars. That loses me as well. I, I never You know, that. I mean, you just think about, you know, I mean, the guy's going to get whatever he can get. I don't know that some of these, you know, what if, if you know anything about, and I, and I work in, in, in Hollywood where I do the uh, webcast that I do the, uh, over there, and, uh, you know, I know a lot of the performers. I mean, the average actor or actress is not making a lot of money. So how do you justify somebody getting $1,500 a week, maybe $2,000 a week at the most, and then there's one actor in the movie or two who are supposedly big stars, and they're getting $20 million because they're going to get what they can get. It's that simple. How do you explain the surgeon who says to you because your child has, God forbid, a brain tumor, well, of course I can do something about it. That'll be a quarter of a million dollars, but I don't have coverage, doctor. Well, tough. Joel, Chow, now here's the answer to that. That doctor is paying between one, two million dollars a year in nothing but liability insurance. I mean, I, I can understand it in the case of a doctor who's asking for huge sums of money, the amount of money they have to spend to be in business it depends it's, on the specialty, actually. Well, yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. Really Liability does. insurance at this point in time. Yeah, their malpractice premiums are high. Okay. Well, no, high. They're not high. They're they're they started about three to four hundred thousand dollars a year. So yeah, I understand it. No, I, I no. do understand it. But we we yes. still are in a system. We're talking about the system. I'm not criticizing the individual doctor necessarily, or even the uh, the, the slimy attorney who uh, will take whatever you have if he has to defend you in a criminal case. If you have ten million dollars, that's what he's going to charge you. You have a million. It's a million. You know that. I mean, whoever, whoever is wealthy goes bankrupt as soon as their uh, their case is over, win or lose. So, I mean, we're in a free market system. I guess he has the right to charge whatever he wants, and it's up to the person who intends to go to him to decide whether they are willing to pay it. You know, I, I don't know on what basis you make that price up. I don't know on what basis anything is decided, as I said about the ball player. I don't know why a, a New York City cop or a New York City firefighter is so underpaid that it, it sickens me. I mean, literally sickens me. And yet, in, in the same borough where, or the same part of the city where they're defending people's lives for, for hardly anything a week, the guy's got a stick and a ball. He's taking steroids, allegedly, and he He's hitting a ball, and he's making, about, what, $100,000 an hour or something? I mean, I, I don't know how you explain anything that in, in the free market system other than it's whatever the market will bear. I guess that's the answer. And the other factor that probably contributes to it is that when you become popular, it's something. If you become very well known, obviously, for some people, it becomes a matter of pride or it becomes a matter of celebrity. And there are people who demand a certain amount of money because they now feel important. And there's that celebrity factor. Now, I'm not accusing him of that, but it does happen. It happens to a lot of people because I've known an awful lot of people before they became famous. And uh, after they became very well known, their whole uh, personality and fee structure changed, if I can be polite. Well, now, sure. It's all it's all know. about branding and market awareness. I think what's interesting, though, in the case of George Anderson, Joel, is that when you go to his website, uh, what what you see at the very opening page is not George Anderson Medium or George Anderson Spirit. I, I don't know. I haven't it's, seen it. Well, I'll tell you, it's George Anderson Grief Support Programs. Oh. So, so it's kind oh, of interesting really? in that, oh, yeah. So he sort of downplays in his very opening page his whole status as a medium. That's interesting. Uh, Usually yeah. psychics and mediums don't do that. Now, from I can tell you this, from practically day one, 
One of the things that George did not want to have happen, nor did I, was to see this being used as an entertainment or a carnival trick or, you know, the amazing Kreskin or some mentalist act. Right. In other words, right. if it wasn't going to have, if it didn't have a purpose and it was just going to be, you know, a, a, a juggling act or, a, you know, a, some nightclub act, I, I really wouldn't have wanted anything to do with it at all, to tell you the truth. Not, frankly, not at a serious level. But, I mean, it was very interesting, even in those test situations, to see that people were responding when we were doing the experiments before he actually went on the air, the test, they were responding to their late or, you know, their deceased loved ones coming through in a way that suggested they were being immensely comforted. It was as if somehow he was giving them therapy. He was counseling them. It was odd. I was talking about that one fellow, and that's the, the only other incident I'll tell you, the fellow who loved uh, Mr. Spock. He was a very, very hard-nosed uh, atheist engineer. And he was very shaken by what George told him, things about his childhood, which were in confidence, apparently, that I knew nothing about. And uh, this gentleman was really moved. He was noticeably emotionally moved by what he heard. And I got the idea very early on that this could be used to help people. And George agreed me, so that would be terrific. It would be wonderful if I can use it for people who've lost loved ones. Simple as that. He didn't want to tell you some mentalist thing. All right, I see I see what you have hidden in your pocket. Uh, let, let me, you know. He never did that. In fact, he, he actually, we tested him for mental telepathy, and he happens to have been terrible at it. He went through so many tests, as I may have told you last year, it was unbelievable. He went through dozens and dozens of tests with all kinds of scientists and doctors, literally. EEGs and uh, brain scanning, the brain imaging, and all kinds of uh, brain tests and tests by scientists, by magicians, by psychologists. And he was always very open to being tested. And it was interesting because he always acted like he was surprised that he was right. It was as if somehow, I'm right? as if he thought he was guessing correctly. And finally, I had to take him over one day on the side and say, George, there's something called the law of probabilities. And he says, what's that? And I said, well, you just can't guess right all the time. It defies the laws. It will be like going to Las Vegas and the dice roll your way every time, a hundred times in a row. It ain't going to happen. So you can't be guessing. And that's when we brought in all of the doctors and scientists that I could find, and there were quite a few of them that I knew. Something clearly was going on in his brain, and we know where it is. And this, this business of do you believe it, it's not a belief system, for heaven's sake. I know now, after years of research, David, it is, it is not a belief system. It is a fact of brain chemistry. It's a fact of actual functions that take place in a certain part of the brain that have made him the way he is. He had, at the age of six, if you recall, me telling you the story. I remember from the right. books. Well, he had, he had a crippling bout of chicken pox, and what that did was uh, reroute his brain. And I had that done uh, in, in terms of really the research part of it, in which he never told me, by the way, his uh, late parents did at the time. Uh, he had, at the age of six years old, a couple of months of uh, paralysis. And the rerouting of the brain probably influenced uh, or inflamed that part of the brain where psychic functioning takes place. And we know where that part of the brain is. It's not because I believe it or because I, I say it that it's so. It's because doctors and scientists have now done the research all over the world. And it always comes up the same way. So when some lying skunk of a debunker says, well, that's not proven it wasn't a scientifically controlled test, you have to say to the uh, lying skunk of a debunker, 
No, pal, that's not true. You can repeat it, and it comes up the same way all the time if it's a genuine psychical medium. It is in the white side of the brain. It's called the white temporal lobe. I don't know a great deal about brain science, but I've seen it in the, the actual uh, uh, prints. You, you know, you see the actual images on the scan, and you can see where it's happening on the EEG machine also, always in the white part of the brain. And other scientists and doctors who I've talked to who have either privately or a couple of cases publicly, tested near-death experiences, spiritual states, prayer, etc., even mediumship, say the same thing. So we know where it's happening. There is a place in the brain that Dr. Melvin Morse, who works with near-death experiences on the West Coast, calls the God Spot. Now, I know that's blasphemy to, to the, the secular community and to uh, a lot of scientists and the so-called humanists, but I can't change the facts. The facts are that we have a different part of the brain for, you know, various functions. And apparently this is not a part of the brain that in most people is activated quite that way. And his it was, because that is the only possible explanation for his accuracy, which was computer analyzed and happens to have been so extraordinary that it was something like the DNA tests. You know, you got a one in one trillion chance of uh, being wrong. And that's the story of George Anderson. What he did beyond that, in the three books I wrote, I really wasn't involved in because that wasn't my role. That wasn't the part that really concerned or interested me. What I found out is that this is real, that the paranormal is genuine after 10 years of doing it, as you said, for the buck. I wanted the ratings. The ratings meant the money. Period. That's all. Same reason that you would to interview an entertainer, a rock star, whoever, a politician. I don't know anybody. But now, all of a sudden, my mind changes, and I, it really derailed me because I'm on the fast track in my broadcasting career, and that's one day, and the next day, I'm sitting there doing paranormal research. What a change. Today, whether you're in business or simply want to share something with friends or family, email and voicemail sometimes just aren't enough. That's why you should try GoToMeeting, a web conferencing solution that will revolutionize how you communicate with your business associates, family, and friends. The ability to host online meetings is an absolute must for today's business. With GoToMeeting.com, it's just like you're all in the same room. Unlimited meetings for one flat rate means you can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. Try it yourself, free for 30 days. Just visit gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. Try GoToMeeting free today. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Hey, let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have the return visit of Joel Martin, paranormal investigator, best-selling author, etc. And I know we've covered a little bit of the ground that we covered last year, and I think David and I really want to move beyond that into some other things. David? Well, see, Joel, here's the thing. As we look at the history of uh, these types of individuals, George has not been the only one. Uh, someone we've talked about on the show with fellow in Los Angeles by the name of David Sonnenschein was one of the best-known psychic surgeons in South America, a guy by the name of Ari Go. 
I know who Arago was. You, you know who Arago was. And Arago did an amazing amount of work over 20 years that was also subjected to quite a bit of scientific scrutiny. That's right. All right. So, so basically what we have is a situation where there are certain individuals who seem to have very unique abilities. They may be anomalies, okay? Well, that certainly appears to be the case because most yeah. human beings clearly do not have these abilities. Absolutely. Why? Why don't they? Yeah. For the same reason that you get a Mozart, we haven't had one since 1790. I mean, for the same reason that you don't have anybody who's totally deaf, totally deaf, and the composes his ninth symphony, as Ludwig von Beethoven did. There are anomalies, there are things about the brain that we fully, really don't understand. I mean, when Beethoven died, you know, they, they literally cut the top of his head. The, the, the scientists of the 1820s wanted to see if his brain looked different than, than people who heard or were normal, in quotes, because how could a, a guy who was deaf compose operas and symphonies? They found nothing. When Einstein died, by then, in 1955, they were able to study his brain in a number of tests, and they found abnormalities. They found cell structures that were different, the number of neurons, the way it was organized. Some sides were large aspects were parts of its regions, where regions had more brain cells than others when you compare it to people who weren't super geniuses, okay? So there are factors in the, the chemical or biological or neurological makeup of a human being that make them different. That's why some people are gifted, brilliant artists. That's why Pavarotti, may he rest in peace, was a brilliant, gifted opera star. And it goes on and on like that. It may be an athlete. It, it could be anybody who's capable of something that most of us are not. And that's what I would suggest is the case with these exceptional people who are mediums. And I'm not talking about every, every jerk who comes down the pike and says, uh, I, I can read your mind. I, I'm a medium. I'll talk to your, your grandma for whatever the amount of money is. We're talking about the genuine, okay? Okay, so, so we have someone like George Anderson who you feel is genuine, and I actually tend to think along the same lines. I think George is probably the real thing, though, I, I, you know, not to delve back into it, but I have real concerns about where he's taken that talent and those capabilities at this point. It doesn't seem like it's been in, in what I would call a real positive fashion. That kind of leads me to a, a sort of the, the larger question here, which is why do you think people will get these abilities and so often you'll have people like this who all of a sudden have something that is very unusual, that makes them very special, and then it appears like almost invariably this leads ultimately to a form of insanity. Do you think it's true that there's that very fine line between genius and madness and that you really can't get too close to one without falling into the other? Oh, they've done studies and they, they know that for a fact. There's no question about that. It's an absolute scientific fact from uh, work that was done years ago and work that's been done recently that poets, for example, people who are extraordinarily sensitive to certain elements of the arts or certain types of abilities are one a higher risk of depression, of uh, psychological problems. Yes, it's very thin. It's not a myth at all. That is true, and they can actually see that also in the brain imaging. They see the differences now that we can look into the brain. That's something they couldn't do years ago. And so the answer is yes, you're right. They are very close. So is the proliferation of antidepressant drugs in our society and the ease at which they're prescribed to people, do you think that this is some kind of an, an attempt on the part of the powers that be to essentially keep us in our place? I mean, do you think that this is being done on purpose? Well, I don't know that it started 
started out to be done on purpose, but I do think that, it, that you know, there, there are active conspiracies, there are, you know, there are tacit conspiracies. In other words, I don't think all of the pharmaceutical companies sat down one day and said, hey, I got an idea, let's get everybody in the country really whacked on, on Prozac or whatever, or, or Valium, and then we'll be able to control them. I don't think it happened that way. I just think the stress of modern life was a problem. And there has never been a society in the history of the world that hasn't sought relief in an altered state, meaning they've tried some drug. There is not one ever anywhere. And uh, we obviously opted to relieve our stress with what was sold to us. And once these companies saw that these things were being sold and they were making not millions but billions and billions and billions, obviously they continued. They continued to market it. We continued to buy it. And we have become the victims of our own stupidity in a way, because we've become dependent now, very much like Huxley wrote about in Brave New World, on uh, drugs that obviously are altering us. In other words, stress is a normal part of life. But can we deal with it? No. We run immediately for some medication because it calms us. It makes us feel better. No pain. I agree. There's nothing you're saying that's wrong at all. Well, now, there'd be some people who'd be listening to this show who might come out and say, you know, that escape from reality to take us away from our stress. A lot of people feel that for a long time in other societies that religion played a role in that. Now, I know that one of the reasons that um, I asked you to, to come back on the show and I got in touch with you, my lovely girlfriend has been listening a lot to the show that you do with Margaret Went. Mm -hmm. And uh, she, she thinks highly of that show. I've listened to some episodes and... Uh, it's an interesting show. There are some things, though, that, that come out that I want to question you about. And, um, you know, on the Paracast, we're known for stirring the, the controversy a bit. Um, uh, a bit. And, and, well, a little bit. And, <laughs> and this brings me to ask you something, Joel, because I was listening to a recent episode, mm -hmm. and you guys were, were essentially railing on people who questioned the existence of God. You did. Mm -hmm. And the way that you, you both put it across is that you felt sorry for them. I do. Um, all right, well, here's the thing. I'm kind of this weird anomaly of a human that I, I have strong spiritual beliefs, but I also mm. have stronger concerns with humans' vanity. And this idea that you, you any human that walks this planet has any kind of a, of a real idea of what the nature of reality is. I, I, I ultimately have come to the conclusion that there's not a human on this planet that has really any clue as to what the nature of reality is, much less... You're right. Here's the problem in, in human thinking, to my mind, no pun intended, but it's like we think we have a handle on having some real understanding of the motivation of whatever it is that's behind this awesome universe of ours. We think we know, but then in the same breath, we make assumptions about other things, or we say, well... We can't understand the nature of God, but I'm sure that I was made in God's image. Do you think maybe that the people who are atheists, and by the way, let me qualify this. I am not an atheist. I've actually been accused on this show privately in emails of being, publicly I've been accused of being an anti-Christian kook. But I've also been accused of being an atheist. And, and in actuality, I'm, I'm not an atheist. At the same time, would I call myself someone who prescribes to an existing religious dogma like Judaism or Christianity? And no, the answer is no. I'm someone who tries to be humble in the idea that I don't have a clue as to what the nature of what propels this universe is. So on your show, when you and Margaret were talking about this, you were saying, well, you feel sorry for people who don't 
believe in God. You realize, That's right, I do. You realize that there are a lot of people who would ultimately turn around and say to you, well, I feel sorry that you believe that you know who God is. I never said I believed I knew who God was. What I said was that I feel sorry for somebody who's so stupid as to not think or to, to, to say absolutely, to tell me absolutely that there is no creator is as moronic as me telling you what the creator is like. Excuse me. That's what I'm saying. I'm essentially saying what you're saying. We don't know the nature of what is there. And I'm saying stay open to it. We're not talking about dogma. We're not right. talking about religious ritual. The Lord knows I had enough of that growing up in, in two different religions. We're not talking about that. We're talking about creation. We're talking about a supreme being, an ultimate energy, if you will, the need that people have for a belief system. The fact is that the brain is hardwired. It literally is hardwired for religion. It's, you know, this business of did man make God or did God make man? The fact is there is that part of the brain that does react to these experiences. So the brain is wired for these experiences. I don't even think that we have that much of a choice. And atheism is a religion. It's got a dogma. It's got its rituals. It's got its rules. It's as much of a religion as any other. And uh, when somebody says, as debunkers often do when you're talking about the paranormal, there is no God. There is no afterlife. Well, you moron, you can't say that any more than I can tell you what it's like <laughs> if there is an afterlife. That's what I'm saying. And I would tend to agree with you on that, by the way. I think that that is exactly correct. I think when you when you say there isn't this, there isn't that, well, at that I point... I didn't say that. You, I don't have, know. Right, right. You have to sort of back things up. But do you believe then, Joel, that the interest, and this segues us sort of into the next topic that maybe we'll deal with after the break, but do you believe then that the interest in things like the paranormal is essentially the equivalent of a modern-day religion? Is it, the, is it fulfilling the same need that religion yeah, fulfills? I think in many cases, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say yeah, I, I do think it is. Uh, I think part of the reason is because the brain is hardwired the way it is. Part of the reason is because most people do need a structure and they need a belief system. If you know anything at all about the founding of this country and the great men who founded this country, even though I know it's not politically correct to talk nicely about those dead white men from Europe, <laughs> we, we had said, well, you know, we're living in a country that's become a collective insane asylum. Like that's the whole other show, I suppose, too. And the founding fathers, were, were, despite what they'll tell you on, on Christian television, were not Christian. People like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, etc., they were not Christians. They were Unitarians. They were deists. In other words, they believed in a creator, but they didn't know what the creator, just as we were talking about, they didn't know what shape or form the creator took. But they did recognize that most people weren't going to think at that level, and they had to provide people with some belief system. And believing that there was some kind of a higher energy or supreme force, if you will, they thought Christianity was probably the best they could do to provide the people for whom they were working, in other words, in terms of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and so forth, and the founding of this country, they thought that was the best belief system they could give them, even though they themselves did not believe in it in the way that the, 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 uh, the dogma of, uh, of Christianity does. Thomas Jefferson was not a Christian. Noah was Benjamin Franklin, nor was John Adams, nor was James Madison. Sam Adams and Tom Paine, same thing. Are you saying they were going for the lowest common denominator for marketing reasons? They were going for 
It, well, I, I wouldn't call it marketing. Were they All going right. for the lowest common denominator? No, they were going for the best common denominator they could to give people guidance because they knew already at that point that religion was not only ingrained in people, but uh, the people in this country, but that most of them were Christian, overwhelmingly. And at the same time, people cannot live without structure or boundaries. That's why somebody says, I'm an atheist. Well, you just created boundaries. You're just giving yourself the same boundaries that you're saying somebody who's religious has, but you don't. But you do have them. You've got your parameters and you've got your dogma. What's the difference? And they knew that people needed those boundaries, so they went for what they thought was the best possible system they could uh, choose. And since most people were inclined to believe Christianity, and since the Founding Fathers understood the Bible and had read it and did believe in a supreme being, that's what they chose. Otherwise, we'd all be Buddhists today, I suppose. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730. Or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. It's one small step to Armageddon. 2019, the moon. A Soviet spacecraft found after half a century holds the darkest secret of the moon race and the hope of all humanity. Paul Levinson, the award-winning author of The Silk Code, writes, The novel Red Moon is a masterpiece, an adventure that you'll never forget. By David S. Michaels and Daniel Brenton. Available now at Amazon.com. Find out more at Luna15.com. That's L-U-N-A-1-5. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Joel Martin returns to our show talking about paranormal events, belief systems, etc., etc. And now we're getting into all sorts of things that we want to explore further. Well, as far as everybody being Buddhist, uh, I'm just going to throw this out for discussion. <laughs> I, I don't think that would be a terrible thing. It Wait, would not I, be. No, frankly, I don't think it would, I agree with you. I, I do agree with you. I mean, look, it comes down to this. You know, if you look at the history of humanity and its abuse of religion. That's I mean, right. How many people have been killed in the name of Jesus and God? And Of course. Uh, you know, uh, you have to stop and wonder about this. And, and again, sort of come to the point where you think, all right, what role does religion really serve in the history of our species? And, and that is, takes us to a very dark place. Yes, it does. But you have to also say what role would be, well, how can I word it even better than that? If you had no religion, the way you hear very often an atheist or a secularist speak, what would they replace it with? All right, we have now wiped away religion. Now what are you going to replace it with? Now, wait a minute. Uh, so there's this song, you may have heard it from this guy. He was a kind of a folk songwriter, John Lennon. He had this song called Imagine. Maybe you heard it sometime. I don't know. It's a it's a decent little ditty of a tune. What Lennon put forward in that song, and I'm not trying to say that this is a guy who had the answers to the world. 
Certainly, I don't think he would claim he did. But in that song, he puts forward that, hey, maybe if we just loved each other and threw the rest of the stuff out, we'd have a better world. And again, I don't know that I disagree with that. I, I question whether or not it's viable. Hey, it's- it is not viable. Unfortunately, it is not. And John Lennon knew it. I met him briefly. I mean, I, I, I many of the people around the Beatles in those years and uh, have met him. And so, you know, having seen and, and uh, known of them personally in one way or the other, um, because I, I did a lot of work around rock and roll because, as I said, the talk show was on a rock station, so there was no not much choice, no way to avoid it. He was not wrong in what he sang, but it's like once upon a time, I wish her they lived happily ever after. If only, you know, shoulda, woulda, coulda. I, I, it would be great if that was, you know, true. Imagine all the people are getting together. Oh, we're all be in love. Well, that was the whole business of the new age, and I'm old enough to remember the 1960s and early 70s. They say if you can remember them, you really weren't there. So there are some major gaps in my memory for various reasons. But putting aside the issue of sex and drugs and rock and roll, the reality is that that was going to be the great promise of the new age, that fulfillment where we'll all be happy, we'll all get together. There's something wrong with people, I guess. I mean, however we're created, it seems that it's much easier to be bad than it is to be good. And notice, if you want to talk about that John Lennon song, notice what the title is. Forget the lyrics. What's the title? Imagine, because that's all you can do with material like that. Imagine. Imagine if everybody in the world got along when they lived together or got married. Gee, we put all the divorce lawyers out of business. Not a bad idea, but it's not realistic. Imagine if everybody drove like a human being instead of a half of the lunatics. We'd have no world rage. But that's all you can do is imagine it, because there's something about the human being that is good, and there's something that's bad. We're not all one shade we're not all of one type and where did it say that atheism was any great shakes i mean what was the soviet union what was stalin is not a butcher well the problem is ultimately you have to believe in something and i I, I gotta tell you i'm with uh, kurt vonnegut who in his last book said the only proof he had potentially for the existence of god was music that he 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 literally said this in the book in this book he said that's the the one proof he had that there was a, a greater power was the 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 timelessness mm-hmm. and the objective beauty of music? You know what? I have to agree with Vonnegut on that. I think I do. I do too. The one thing that our species has produced that may be really truly of unique value and beauty, it would be that. But see, that then brings us to this place that okay, let's say that it is essentially a fantasy. Think that we could all live together and, and be in peace. All right. So at that point. What's the happy medium? And this is this. Let's bring this right back to paranormal stuff, which is that here we have this field of study of things that are the greatest mysteries to our culture, mm-hmm. and yet we can't get two people in here to agree on pretty much anything. And I can certainly just think about the idea of UFOs, where people, what ends up happening is that people get their little their little head concept. Mm-hmm. or their explanation, then what they do is they go forward and they defend this, and they don't open their minds up to any new possibilities. They basically defend this until the death. That's it. You know, they have right. this you're, one you're right. And that, You're right about that, and it's such a, a bad attitude. It's wrong to be that way. 
does that attitude preclude us from ever moving forward as a species? What do you think about that? Oh, that's a, you, you got great questions. I wish the answers were really easy, but uh, the questions are terrific. Actually, uh, we have a I sale think... after the show's over. We're going to sell the best answers in the universe. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. I, I find it much easier to ask the questions than answer them, truthfully. But I, I've given a lot of thought to what you're talking about. I really have. Because, uh, you know, spending years teaching and broadcasting, seeing so much in traveling, you do wonder about that. And I, I've read some studies, which I do agree with. I'm sorry to say I've come to this conclusion, too. I think we've evolved as far as we're going to evolve in the spiritual sense, okay? We keep improving in technology, but when we improve in technology, what do we do with it spiritually? We invent something as incredible as the Internet, cyberspace, computers, I mean, things that just boggle the, the, the mind. And what is 70% or 80% of it being used for? Pornography. Yep. You know, we can, absolutely. Yeah. Do you understand what I'm saying? We can do these amazing things technologically, and we will probably advance in that way for a long time to come. But spiritually, no, I think we've gone as far as we are going to go. My, my best analogy is I love my dog. I have two two puppies and I've got uh, some kittens, and my dog will never learn to read. No matter how old he gets to be, no matter how well he's treated, no matter how good we are to train him, he's gone as far as he can go. Okay, that's it. So you my think cat- humans humans have gone as far as they can go spiritually? Really? I really do. I'm, I, I hate saying it. I really do. Look at the world. Read a history book, and if you tell, if you can tell me what you see. That's so different today about what we're doing spiritually than people did uh, 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago or more. You know, I'll, I'll eat the pages of the book because in many ways, all we've done was improve uh, maybe the housing. It, it, in, a, in a sense, we've gone from a, living in a cave to living in a condo. I guess we've also learned how to kill people better. We've yes, become we very, That's very exactly efficient at killing That's people. Right. It's just become right. really, really annoying that we can kill people so well, so easily with such right. efficiency. Right. And that becomes That's very irritating. Religion of, yeah, religion is of no use there unless somebody actually accepts the tenets of religion. So nothing has been an influence to stop hideous motor rates in, in the cities of this country. Wars between people that make no sense. Uh, sectarian violence. And I'm not getting into politics. I'm just talking about human beings' behavior. Well, you always have to get into politics whether you want to or not. But let's look at something I else know. here. Why yeah. do we experience paranormal events? Does this have any relationship to the spiritual imbalance, the fact that we've basically sold our souls to make it rich or whatever, have all these technological gadgets? Sure we have. We, we, of course we have. We've traded one for the other. The, the, the late Dr. Martin Luther King, as he had said, that not, this is not you know, necessarily being for him or against him, but I do remember him very uh, profound, saying very profoundly, we have been able to move technology forward, science forward, but we have not been able to move men's or you know, human beings' spirits or hearts forward. And he was right. I'm paraphrasing him. But basically he was saying exactly that. And that's the trade-off. It's easier to be materialistic. It's more fun. I mean, it's hard to be good. It, it's easier to put your foot on the pedal, floor it, and, and go barreling through a light. It's a lot harder to be decent. It's a lot harder, apparently, to be polite and to be nice. It just is. It's easier to be a rotten guy. Any actor will tell you which is harder to play. Is it harder to play a sloppy, filthy bad guy or a very neat good guy? And the answer is it's much easier to play the bad guy because you can let all your inhibitions out. Basically, what do we do? We trade 
all of the anger or hostility in us because society says we have to, we trade that for a certain amount of security. That's a, a Sigmund Freud thing from a long time ago. In other words, I want to be safe. And because I want to be safe and there are bad guys out there, I let the police, I let the politicians, so do you. We let the law tell us what we can and cannot do as a, a bargain that we make for them keeping us safe, even though we're giving up a certain amount of our rights to do so. Because apparently we cannot really control ourselves as human beings. We don't seem to be able to. And I don't think we can go any farther than we've gone. You're always going to find some exceptions. You're not getting too many of them. I mean, you'll read about ancient Greece and read about Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, whoever. And, and who is our great avatar today? Dr. Phil. I mean, come on. <laughs> oh, please, don't get me started about Dr. Phil. But now we get to the next message, the message being delivered by some of the creatures seen in various paranormal events. It could be UFO abductions. It could be physical contacts, and UFO abductions may or may not be physical. Whatever it is, they tell us that we've got to get our stuff together, and that we're really messed up, and we've got to love one another. Do you think that's why we have paranormal events in the first place, to receive that warning? Oh, I think there's no question that a great deal of, of what we read into the paranormal is what we've read into what uh, David said before about religion, what you both said about the, what we do with religion. In other words, we, we use a fancy word, anthropomorphize. In other words, we, we humanize a lot of abstract concepts the way we make, you know, uh, the way Walt Disney made the ducks and, and mice, you know, walk around and look like they were real creatures. We, with thinking capacity and movable thumbs, you know, we, of course, that's what we've done. We, uh, we, we've made the, that terrible bargain. And now we're, we're stuck with, with who we are, and there's not much more we can do with it. How are we going to get better? What is there to guide us? What is there to really lead us? So what do we do? We go to the paranormal, of course. Uh, what is a UFO except a, either A, a real object so that's from somewhere else, or something that we can make from a myth or mythologize because we want it to be something to believe in. We need something to believe in, okay? It's as simple as that. I don't care what any secularists tell you. We have got to have something to believe in. People cannot live without hope, and they cannot live without belief in something. And if we don't have that belief, we're going to make it up, whether it's real or not. Now, why do millions of people suggest they've seen UFOs? From the documents I've seen, those declassified documents, and I had the first radio broadcast in the country about them back in the late 1970s, something was going on that this government did not understand. What that phenomenon was, I God only knows, literally, but something was going on. Something is going on with the paranormal. Just because we don't understand it doesn't mean that it's not happening. In other words, the limits of our perception is not all there is to perceive. Did you hear the story the other day, the discovery they made about lobsters? I'm not joking about this, about crustaceans. About you, you may have heard, no. Uh, those fish, this is not a joke. Those little, be you know, funny little beady metallic guys they have in those antenna. it turns out they have x-ray vision. Not a joke. They can see through wood. They can see through metal. They literally have x-ray vision. And they, you know, make you think before you eat an egg lobster. But you think about other species. Think about the range of hearing that a dog has, the, the parts of the light spectrum that a pigeon can see that we can't. There are things that we cannot do, the things we want to do. And what we can't do, we have to have some way to, uh, to, to codify. On the other hand, there are things we can never do because of the way we're built. You talked about Vonnegut before and music. Do you know that after the age of 13, 
the way your brain is, the human brain is constructed, you cannot learn to play the violin in a way that would make you a virtuoso. In other words, you, you simply cannot become a great, great violin player if you don't learn it before the age of 13. So the fact that my son learned at 7 or 8 is one reason why he was very good. I don't think he practiced as much as he could, and right now he's busy with his college education, hasn't really picked it up. But for the first year, when he was a freshman, without much practice, he'd pick it up and he'd do fine. Because, again, okay. he had studied with some pretty That's talented right. people for almost a decade. When he was very young. Right. He started like seven years old. Yeah. That's the age you start. Now, why, why is that? I mean, there, in other words, there are certain constructs. There are certain things we're hardwired for. That's a reality. If you're looking for a black or white answer or a yes or a no, it, it, it's hard to do that because I don't think everything comes down to, you know, one department to the other. This business of you either take the left side or you take the right side. There is a middle, there is a middle range. And the, the middle range suggests some things we cannot change, we cannot control, and other things we have to make up if they are not there. It's in the old song, if you remember, that the, that Simon and Garfunkel did, where, you know, where have you gone, Joe, to marry Mrs. Robinson? In other words, even back in the late 60s, I mean, they were looking for heroes. Those look like the good old days now, but who are you going to look up to? You know, and I'm not picking on anybody. No, but, well, I mean, no, well, who's a role model? Whitney Spears? I mean, it, it, no, I'm not no. saying that there weren't problems years ago, but there was a sense years ago of what was right and what was wrong, even though there was a tremendous amount of racism, misogyny, and sexism. I understand all of that. But you had a sense, at least, of some rules. And people need rules, just like dogs and, and kittens need rules, okay? And we're breaking that down. And the other mistake we're making, actually, and it touches on the paranormal, it touches on UFOs and every aspect of our spiritual and, and physical beings, is that we don't share. You mentioned it before. You can't get two people to agree on anything anymore. And that's very bad. If you have that kind of a situation, you can only go in one of two ways, the dictatorship, something totalitarian, or anarchy. We are not getting ourselves together. We're not using the intelligence we have. I'm doing the same thing other people are doing. I'm watching junk on television at night. I'm watching trash. Well, there was another yeah. word for two, why? but we'll get to that in a why? minute. Why? I'll tell you what. We'll ask the question, but, why? The proverbial why coming up on Hour 2 of the Paracast. We're talking with Joel Martin, paranormal researcher, best-selling author, back in Hour 2. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. We're on hour two of the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Joel Martin returns for the second hour on his second appearance on the show. And we've been talking here about spiritual imbalance, paranormal events, that kind of thing. Now, let's look into something here where I suggested that paranormal events may be the warning to say, hey, human beings, you're messed up. You've got to get your act together. Now, let's look at something else. Back in the 1950s, there was a book on UFOs by Dr. Carl Jung, the late Swiss psychiatrist, where he talked of UFOs being a part of our collective unconscious. Yes. So are paranormal events, perhaps, part of our collective unconscious communicating to us in some way, giving us a warning, giving us a message, and we just aren't reading it? I tend to agree with that, and I tend to see the paranormal 
in those terms. One of the problems we've had as a, a species is uh, we have to make some sense out of abstraction. We need to do that because we can't function, we can't live otherwise. And what he called the collective unconscious might be a soul memory, it might be termed as energy, it might be termed anything you wish that we draw from. And if in fact we are energy and we are surrounded by energy, it's possible there is an interconnection between us and something that's way out there. There is a lot of evidence to support a theory like that in scientific terms. So yes, I think Carl Jung was absolutely right. Now, does that mean that we're making it up? No, it doesn't mean that it's all myth. It just means that we may be drawing from that same source. How else do you explain why a civilization on one side of the world have the same belief system as a civilization that couldn't possibly have known about the other one on the other side of the world. There are commonalities that just defy chance, similarities that really make no sense. But here's the thing, I mean, do they defy common logic? Because ultimately, if you step back from this planet and you look back down at it, yeah, it's the sphere in the middle of space where every living creature on it has a whole large variety of similarities. So, I mean, part of this, and this brings me back to the to the problem with human vanity, guys, is that we believe that, you know, we are this incredibly special species, but in yeah. the end, you know, is that really... Before we talk about that, I just want to address one thing, because we talk about, for example, you know, you know Joel, you brought up before you know, people who report seeing UFOs. Why, why does this happen to them? And one of the things I've talked about here on the Paracast quite a bit, to, to some detrimental effect, are my UFO sightings. And they've been pretty extensive and pretty extreme. And what I can tell you is this. I mean, I don't know what the hell I saw, but in more than a couple of cases, what I saw was seen by other people appeared to be, and these are, these are daylight sightings. This is not lights in the sky stuff. This is, uh -huh. hey, there's a structured craft in front of me. Right. It's doing things that craft like that are not supposed, you know, that no craft that we know of as human technology is supposed to do. I think that has to be seen as what it is. And, and you know, clearly a UFO is an unidentified flying object. Right. Part of the problem is that in our attempt to categorize things, right. what ends up always getting attached to that is an, an, a UFO with alien creatures. It's like, well, or extraterrestrials. It's like, well, right. you don't know that, guys. You don't know what's in that thing. All we can say is, okay, that doesn't look like it's one of ours. Now, tying that back into the whole idea of the collective unconscious, uh -huh. clearly there are some threads that run underneath of society that seem to have some way of linking us all together right. in a way that's not obvious on the surface. That's so, correct. okay. And these things appear to be part of the structure of nature, right. of nature on this planet. And again, I'm looking at, you know, you look at this planet and it's like, it's this planetary system where, you know, what's the one thing we know about every human being on this planet? Well, without water and oxygen, we're toast. You know, you, right. you can pretty much say that for every Every being on this planet, there are, there are those reports, and this is where it gets weird, right? There are those reports of that one, this is one kid in India, supposedly that was living without ingesting any water at all. Uh -huh. And I'm reading that and thinking, now what the hell is this? Like, how could that even be? So this brings us to the question, can the human brain create realities that are not part of normalcy and can these realities be shared and, and does that end up explaining what so much of the paranormal world is it does the brain have abilities that are so far beyond anything we understand that maybe that's why these non-human entities seem interested in us because of the our own abilities that we ourselves do not understand 
it's a really great question. You're asking, is the brain, forgive me, able to create what we believe are the realities as opposed to them actually being realities? Of course. The answer, the answer is absolutely yes. I mean, I, I hate to use an extreme example, but what the heck were the shamans doing if not uh, in the ancient uh, tribes, uh, the same as they did in the 1960s, in the, using hallucinogenic drugs? It was to create an alternate reality. And often in that alternate reality, you saw things or dimensions or places or, or events that you couldn't otherwise see, and some of them proved to be darn real and even were predictive of things to come in the future. And so, yeah, sure, we can alter our reality, and uh, we may, in fact, what we call the soul or the spirit might be nothing more than, well, it would be pretty impressive, but it might be a form of energy, and that form of energy might connect with somebody else's energy, but we've had to give it a label. So we've called it a soul or a spirit. And it may similarly be with UFOs, that there are aspects of our minds that are drawing from that tremendous energy to create the, the appearance, the illusion, if you will, that there is another dimension, or if we are really as Carl Sagan once called us all on this part, guilty of terrestrial chauvinism, which is what you alluded to before, perhaps there are extraterrestrials, perhaps there is life elsewhere. He believes strongly in that, although he never believed in UFOs. Now, you say you saw something. I have no reason to doubt you, and I have no reason to think you're making it up or lying or hallucinating. There's something possibly beyond here that we don't understand in many, many directions. And that's why I was talking before about the lobster, the dog, and the cat. There are things that are perceptible that we cannot perceive. And it may very well be that the UFO is a genuine physical object, or it's something that we are creating. Either way, clearly we have a need for it, or it wouldn't it wouldn't proliferate. But the nature of the witnesses and the number of people who've had paranormal experiences, UFO experiences, add them all together as one, if you will, come to hundreds of millions. Literally, hundreds of millions of people. As you said before, you can't get two people in an old phone booth together to agree on anything in this country, and yet hundreds of millions of people have had these experiences, and we're telling them that they're crazy or that it never happened. That's the part that irks me. Not that we disagree with what it is, but that somebody will say, David, you never saw a UFO, David. You don't know what you're talking about. You never had that experience, okay? I've been accused of just that, Joel. And the thing is that, you know, when, when people bring up the question, do you believe in UFOs, my stock response is, do you believe in cars? Exactly. Believe, I, what do you mean, do I believe in them? Well, okay, see that car just went by, do you believe in that? Well, I don't have to believe in it. It just went by. Well, see, bingo. Do I believe exactly. in UFOs? I don't have to believe in what I've seen with my own two eyes. But, but again, that then segues into the comment, does that mean I know what it is? What do no, I you, see? Right. Mm, I can tell you what I don't know. Right. I don't know where it came from. I don't know what it is. I, I don't think it's one of ours. I mean, I see. I saw one thing that I can say with certainty. No, that's not one of ours, as in current human technology. But you know what, Joel, this brings us to something else that you mentioned just a second ago, which is that, you know, you can't get two people in a phone booth to agree about anything. I think part of the problem with that is that if you look at, for example, the state of our country today, it looks for all practical purposes like there's another civil war style conflict brewing, which is, right. you know, we're, we're in a country where we have basically these two extreme positions. You're either left yeah. or you're right. Well, I've got now, red states and blue states. What does that remind you of? It's not the civil war. Oh. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly correct. So does that 
then you know th- this whole th- thing of this binary way of approaching reality. You're either A or you're B. You're, right. you're liberal or you're Democrat. You're you're left or you're right. You're religious right. or you're atheist. Is that all a product of the physiological arrangement of our brain and these two bifurcated lobes? I mean, is our view like that? You know, you have two ears, you have two eyes, you have two hands, you have two feet, you have two two cerebral lobes, you have two sides of your body with this bilateral symmetry. Is our binary approach a byproduct of the limitations of our own physiology? And that, by the way, was something I thought was very interesting about the original War of the Worlds, where the Martians were portrayed as being three. They had three eyes, and, and fascinatingly enough, red, green, right. and blue, they three fingers, you know, and it was like, this is like the big separation was that everything was in groups of threes, which from a geometrical symmetry point of view, a three-sided object is much solid, much more solid, much stronger than a two-sided or even a four-sided object. That's why the Uh, space people couldn't be defeated until they caught a cold. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car, a sleep timer, an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we'll have a reaction to the aliens catching a cold from Joel Martin, paranormal <laughs> researcher, best-selling author, who sometimes laughs at what I say. He's the only person in the universe other than a tech writer, Adam Inkst, and of course, my late mother-in-law. And my late mother-in-law, don't start any jokes about why she laughed at my jokes. Alright, I won't say a word. I have no, no idea why we said that. Because you're, you look funny, alright? Is that what you were fishing? Actually, no, she laughed after what I said, you know, she thought I was some kind of weird person, and there I you go. thought, <laughs> yeah, yeah, all right, thought, right. And I said, I, re- I said, I resemble that remark. But um, <laughs> you actually raised a very serious point about people who have belief systems that don't conform to what the, the mass of the people believe. 
People are, in fact, regarded as uh, weird or crazy or strange if you have an atypical experience. And that's why the uh, the thing you said before, do you believe in uh, cars? Well, I don't have to believe in them. They're there. That's exactly what Carl Jung would say when he was asked, do you believe in all of this stuff? Because well, he was both a psychiatrist and a psychoanalyst. But the, it, people would say, do you believe in, in all this weird thing? Those years they used to call it the occult. you believe in the occult on flying saucers? He said, no, I, it's not that I believe. I, I know. I know something is there. I know there are phenomena that I don't understand. I don't know what they are necessarily. You can't say what they are. But to say that we are going to take a position that they're not there because we don't understand them, that's silly. I mean, that, that's, that's preposterous. That's not science. That's not moving forward. That's my problem with the so-called skeptics, the debunkers, the atheists, the secularists, etc., I don't care if you don't believe in it. I'm not trying to proselytize. I'm not an evangelical minister. I'm just telling you, keep an open mind because you don't know what you're going to find. I never dreamed that I would meet somebody who was going to show me the things, the phenomena that I saw George Anderson do. I saw an apparition, and if anybody doesn't believe I saw that apparition or calls me a liar, I'm going to give you a corner in Brooklyn to meet me in my old neighborhood. I promise you, I'll be the one who walks away. I, because I actually, honest to God, had one experience with an apparition. Now, if you ask me what it was, I don't know. Am I lying? No, I wouldn't dare do that. Well, I want to know what it is myself. You've got to tell us a story now. True story. Honest to God, true story. I was in Bonn, Germany, and we visited a, a beautiful, beautiful old church called the Bonn Basilica, which is in downtown Bonn. And it's, I don't know, I could hear if something is 20 years old, it's old, and they, they want to knock it down. But they got churches there that go back to the year 900, literally. So this thing is from like 1100, you know, so we're talking about a church that's about 800, 900 years old, I don't know, something in that vicinity. I'm sitting there because I had gone to visit somebody who was sick and in hospital at the time. That's why we made the visit to way off to Bonn, Germany. And I'm sitting there and uh, quietly with uh, the young lady who's with me all the time, my companion, and uh, she's very devoutly Catholic. And so she's praying, and I'm sitting. And I, I don't know what I'm listening to. I'm in German. I'm just sitting quietly. All of a sudden, I turn to my right, and I see somebody walking toward me. He was dressed in a, the, the traditional old habit that nuns wore. But as she becomes more visible and is closer to me, all I'm seeing is a silhouette or a shadow. I don't know why I wasn't frightened. I don't know why I didn't say anything. I just sat there, stone cold, not moving. She walked over to me, the silhouette, no features, just a shadow, walked behind me, put an imaginary cape that felt like she was putting a shawl or a cape over my shoulders, and then she walked to the left of me, which meant the only place she could have passed through was a wall. Now, I mm. don't do drugs. I wasn't sleeping. It wasn't a waking dream. I'm not making any money from it. I have no reason to lie. I'm not hallucinating, etc. That's my one experience in my entire life researching this subject in which I am totally baffled by what they would call an apparitional phenomenon. It, honest to God, happened. It was in September of 1997. To this day, I don't know who the nun was. It's not a belief system. Apparently, something was there. Now, maybe she went back hundreds of years ago, and maybe it was an apparition. Possibly. I don't think it was anybody dressed to look like one because it was almost something you could see through. It wasn't even three-dimensional. It was the, the strangest experience. Now, the thing about the shawl is interesting because I'm not Catholic, even though I, I go off into the church just to be with my companion. I, it took me three days to walk up the courage to tell her about the experience. Mr. Psychic Researcher here, I, I couldn't bring myself to tell her. I well, why. you know, that's not unusual. People want to be recognized as being serious researchers, and sometimes... Right. 
times they don't want to admit they've actually had experiences because right. somehow yeah. it denigrates from their credibility. But hey, right. you're saying that other people are telling the truth. Why can't you tell the truth? This right. is it. This is it. Well, I, I finally, three days later, I said something to her. I said, yeah, do you know? And I told him about the experience, just as I told it to you. While we were sitting in church, she said, I didn't look. She said, why didn't you tap my shoulder or say something? I couldn't think. I was kind of mesmerized by it. I, I was just watching it all happen. I said, well, can I ask you something? Do you know why she would have put a shawl over me? It felt like she put an honest-to-God shawl over my shoulders. And she says to me, oh, it's very matter-of-factly because she understands Catholic history and spirituality so well, it's, it's, it's almost frightening. She said, oh, it's called a shawl of protection. I said, what? You're not surprised? She said, oh, no, there is such a, a belief and there is such a phenomenon. She said it doesn't happen very often, but it's been known to. I'm not Roman Catholic. I don't know anything about that kind of a, of, of a, a habit or a, a system or a belief or whatever. So here was something that I wasn't even aware of that she's telling me is part of this religious belief, and I'm telling her this is what happened to me. And it was daylight. You mentioned before daylight experiences with the UFOs. This was a noon mass, and those moron debunkers will tell you, well, uh, it's what we call a waking dream. And they have a new one now that you're fantasy prone. They keep changing terminology. Well, uh, they make know, it up as they go along. They, they pretty much do, you know. Sure. They, they really do, certainly. It's like taking a, a really crummy neighborhood and changing the name of the neighborhood so you can uh, sell the houses at a higher price. They do that all over New York and probably in other cities as well. Fantasy prone. No, I'm not fantasy prone. And I, I also wasn't daydreaming or whatever. I only have a look. If I was going to make stuff up, I, I've got to make up a heck of a lot more than that. I don't know what happened. The whole situation took the whole event last maybe what between three minutes and four minutes it was a matter of just a, uh, a few moments a few minutes where did it come from what is it i don't know but to deny it happened why are we so willing think about it why are we so quick to disbelieve and i, I don't know why but we are maybe it's what you said maybe we don't want to be regarded as different maybe we don't want to be regarded as weird because that's the way we've been programmed we've been programmed to disbelieve and the proof of it, I can give you a very... Disbelieve in certain things, believe in other things. Exactly. That's exactly the example I was going to give you. If you tell me that you spoke to dead people in church on Sunday or synagogue on Friday night or Saturday morning or in the mosque on Friday, so, or the, the Buddhist temple, whatever, fine. You, you spoke to them, but so you, you were praying. Fine. Now, do the same thing. We, we accept that because we're programmed to. Now, tell me it happened to you Tuesday in the men's room or... Monday on the parkway, or Wednesday when you were shopping for something at the uh, 7-Eleven. What, what are you, nuts? You speak of the dead people? Are you crazy? Because we're programmed in that situation to disbelieve. So we are programmed. And that's what I think is, is something we don't recognize. But most of our programming has been to disbelieve because the powers that be are threatened by these phenomena because they don't understand them, they can't explain them, and because they've built their own systems. Well, they, don't want you to go to, they don't want you to go to another store. They want you to do business in theirs. That's right. They so want what? you to believe their nonsense as opposed exactly. to believing some other nonsense. Exactly. Or there's another agenda. I mean, of course, we have the conspiracy theories that we are already in league with alien beings 
beings or crypto terrestrial beings or whatever they are. Yeah, I've heard of Sure. Whether there's a conspiracy or not. I, frankly, the only reason I, I question whether there's a conspiracy is because I, I take a kind of dim view about government's ability. I don't know that it's smart enough to conduct that kind of conspiracy. I, I, I wonder if we have people who are bright enough who are at the top or in the hidden government in Washington who are somehow involved in something that uh, links them with extraterrestrials. Would I say no to it? I wouldn't say no, but do I think they sit down and, and uh, have these secret conferences? I don't know. I'll tell you one thing that I did find. I found an old memo. This is the honestly got true story. I mean, I have a copy of it, so that, that I couldn't be making it up. This is a memo I read of a group of very important people who gathered together sometime in the, I think, early 1960s, pretty much at the height of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. And what it was was a memo talking about how this group of very important people were going to get together to talk about certain paranormal aspects that would apply to intelligence and military functions. So it's the best way I, I can word it. It was to happen someplace in the Washington, D.C. area. There was a, a Maryland location on it, right near Washington. And the memo was fascinating because it says at the bottom, please keep this information about our meeting confidential. It does not seem necessary to alarm people or in any way panic them or upset them. Public knowledge would not serve any purpose, in other words. So would you call that a conspiracy? Here were scientists and theoreticians and some military people, political people, coming together at a meeting at a house in Maryland, near Washington, 40-plus years ago, 45 years ago, whatever, and when they got together and didn't want anybody else to know about it, and they were talking about psychic weapons, is that a conspiracy? Depends how you define conspiracy. Well, like anything else in our society, words get thrown around and used. Sure, and, and misused. Very, well, and people often don't actually know what those words really That's mean. Right. This is like a big thing that is, has happened in our culture, where people throw a word out, and words get all of this emotional weight associated with them. And then what people don't realize is that words have meaning. So when you talk about, like, what's a conspiracy? Well, the definition, a, a dictionary definition of conspiracy is, and I'll just read this from dictionary.com, mm. an evil, unlawful, treacherous, or surreptitious plan formulated in secret by two or more persons. Right. Now, exactly. you know, by that definition, conspiracies occur on the government level in our society every, every hour of every, every day. day. Every day. So, you know, the problem is that the word conspiracy has had this meaning associated with it, just like the word liberal in right. our society has become this dirty, dark word. And well, what's the word actually mean? Oh, it's based on freedom. Freedom has been turned around and somehow been made into a dirty thing. Sure. And, and what worries me about all of this is the permeability and the, manipulate, the, the, the potential for manipulation and abuse of people's understanding of anything, of people's way of looking at the world. And, and I got to tell you guys that when it comes to this idea that, oh, there are government uh, operatives who are in league with aliens, I think it's something far more noxious than that. I've come to the point where I don't want to say I believe because I'm not convinced of it yet. I don't want to say I think that this is the case because I haven't done enough thinking on the topic yet. But I suspect, that's a good word, I suspect that there's a good possibility. And I've said this on the show already, and Gene knows this, and I'll just share this with you, Joel. I mean, I suspect there's a good possibility that the entirety of 
our species at this point. You know, when you say you use the term we're programmed for certain things, mm-hmm. I think that's exactly right. I think that we are programmed. I think that our genetics has been affected by an external source that wants us to behave this way. I think there is a larger game here that people cannot deal with, that they cannot face. And ultimately, I've said this on the show before, our friend Richard Dolan, the the best UFO researcher in the world, he has come in his research work to the conclusion that the government, that certain military operatives within the government are keeping a good amount of information about UFOs secret. Of that, there's no question. I think the the reason for that is that these guys have, have figured out that indeed our reality is most likely one that we have been essentially engineered. And this fear that we have of certain things, this need for religion, Uh um, I think all of that has been engineered into us as a way to control and manipulate us. And I don't think there's a human being on this planet that's in cahoots with quote-unquote aliens, because essentially I believe that whatever those creatures are, they are beyond us in terms of their... uh, mental development and certainly their technological development they are beyond us and i think that essentially what we are is we're a resource and if you figured this out if you were in the military and you had come to the conclusion based on a certain amount of evidence that this is the case the last thing you can do is let the world know this because that would basically at a core level that would basically make people feel that there was no security you know exactly as the the military come out and say well we can't protect you from these things because we don't know what the hell they are uh we don't know how they work we don't know what their agenda is so uh gee um uh uh, but we still want to keep our jobs and our pensions (laughs) that's right no that's exactly right you you, i think you hit it right on on my head i think that's that's what's really going on and and ultimately, that's why people who scream for things like disclosure from the government, they're whistling in the wind. This is not going to happen. There is too much at stake here. It's kind of like the idea that, you know, uh, illegal drugs are going to be legalized. Well, now there's too much money on the, on, uh, uh, under the table. That's right. Uh, th- these things can't happen now because they're, you know, you just tell the American prison industry that, oh, we're going to take, we're going to make marijuana possession now legal. Well, they don't want that because basically that means that, a bunch of their uh, inmates are going to end up going free, and they're not going to get the number of inmates they get now. And, and at this point, you know, prisons are not about rehabilitation. They're about control, and they're about profit. They're profit centers. And, and, and so ultimately what's so sad about this to me is that here we are with this ability of potentially understanding things, but we've traded it all for a half dozen shekels and a chocolate malt. You know, like what right. we sold out for ultimately? Did we get what we thought we were going to get? You know, the, the people who are in high power, high positions of power in government have sold us out for what? A summer home in Switzerland? I'll tell you what, before we go to Switzerland, that what? is interesting <laughs> itself. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at mrufo 
at webtv.net. That's MRUFO at webtv.net, and we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications, and you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos. And it's all for free. Or drop us a line, Mr. UFO at webtv.net. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can. Host I can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? It's reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're not in Switzerland. We're actually in Arizona. We're actually in New York, and we are talking to Joel Martin, talk show host, best-selling author, man about town, who discovered in the Orient. No, that's not exactly what happened. Stop it. No. No, but seriously, Joel. And one no, of the you, you raise I, good questions. Now you do. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to have you back on the show is that I would listened to some of what you're doing with Margaret Wynn, and it seems like you're touching some of these same subjects that yes, we have touched a bunch in the Paracast, right? Because That's this right. is all a, an attempt to try to understand what the hell is really going on. But it sounds exactly. to me, Joel, that you've gotten you've gotten a little acerbic. I mean, if you if you think that we can't evolve, then what's the point of even talking about this stuff? That's a very good question. You know what? I, I, I think probably the reason is because I, I I have to keep that little bit of hope. I said before, you can't live without hope. You have to hope that you're going to make change, if not on the level of lots of people, on the level of maybe a few. If you can touch a few people, if you can save somebody's life. If I write a book that's about mediumship and it's applied to bereavement and it helps save the life of it, which has happened, parents were about to kill themselves because their child died, then I've done something on that very huge personal level. Sounds corny, but I really believe it. But do I think, as a a mass of of people, do I think anything is going to change? No. I I don't think we're evolving. I just think in many ways we're probably devolving. If you're old enough, uh, people listening or yourselves, to remember when things seemed as if they were a little better, a little better organized, when right or wrong there were certain constraints or the sense that there was a future, it's different now than it was then. And in some ways, maybe it seems as if we have some freedoms. On the other hand, this politically correct garbage is killing us. The, the racial division in this country is nonsensical. It should have been healed long ago. There's no excuse for it. There's uh, no excuse either for the fact that kids go to school looking so sloppy that I wouldn't hang around the house dressed the way some of the teachers do in a district where I'm paying taxes that used to be more than somebody made a year working. I, I mean, so there are a lot of things that need correction. And I keep hoping that maybe if I took one life or two or ten or a hundred, maybe that will make some of the change that's necessary. But on a grand scale, do I think we're going to improve? Uh, will motor stop? 
Well, drunk driving uh, accidents, or we've had an accident for drunk driving, crash or stop? No, I don't think so. Will war stop? No, I don't think that will happen. People are too divided. They always have been. And I don't see anything that's going to bring them together except what Ronald Reagan once said years ago. It's funny if you recall the remark he once made. Yeah. You remember that? He said the only thing that's ever going to bring us together will be if extraterrestrials actually land. If UFOs come down and there's an invasion from somewhere uh, from outer space, that will bring this planet together. And the reporters, being, you know, fairly stupid people, in this case, uh, you know, not being very thoughtful in this particular instance, laughed as if he was, you know, touched in the head, he, out of his mind. But he was not wrong. He really wasn't. This is why when there's a terrible blizzard, we sometimes talk to our neighbors when otherwise we wouldn't. It's why we came together for a few days after or maybe a week or two after 9-11. It takes some immense tragedy, something of enormous proportions to teach us or to remind us is a better word, that we have things in common, spiritually and in other ways. But when we are left to our own resources, what are we doing? We're hiding in the house at night, playing with the Internet, watching our HDTV, which is the stupidest thing that's come along in a long time. I, I can now watch Seinfeld, but the fifth we one or under three one, but the picture's going to be a lot better. I mean, come on! You can now watch pimples on the screen. Think about that. Exactly. Really. And I, I've been on TV for years. I mean, I, I, I dread going on to make a guest appearance where they're going to see what my skin really looks like. It's going to be, it's going to be horrible. What about Cameron Diaz? She doesn't have great skin, does she? They keep talking about her pimples. Well, probably so. There were a lot of, a lot of actors and actresses because I've been around a lot of makeup rooms where they're doing practically embalming on some of these people to make them look good. And don't think it wasn't a big issue issue in, in uh, L.A., in Hollywood, where a lot of actors and actresses were privately talking about, and even news people, uh, you know, anchors and reporters, they were very upset about this because they didn't want the close-ups. They don't want that kind of scrutiny. They don't want you looking at them under some magnifying glass to see, you know, the, the little pimple or the little hair on and, and, and the guy's nose, whatever. You know, they just don't need that. But that's where our brains are. We are not looking at the big picture, okay, to use that, that cliche. We're, we're worried about, you know, nonsense. How much is a going to get? next year. The guy who was the manager of, uh, of the Yankees leaves, and, and that's the headline, okay? Whitney Spears' sister uh, is pregnant. That's the big story. We've, we've Even one of the presidential candidates, by the way, talked about Britney Spears' sister and her pregnancy, whether that's she right. should keep her child. That was this Mike Huckabee. I always, when I say that name, I feel like I'm going to cough. Forget it. No, that's exactly what they're talking about. Can you imagine that kind of pop culture working its way into a presidential campaign in a country where 50 million people don't have health care? I mean, you know what? I'm not going to get into those issues necessarily, but I mean, just think of the priorities. Whatever you you know beliefs are politically or how, there's something wrong that we are not. Talking to each other. No, the, the priority is distraction. That's what we're that's talking right. about. This sure. is part of a mechanism that's very well honed, and I've said it at least a half dozen times in the show. I'll say it again for anybody who wants to understand exactly how and why this happened. Rent, or better yet, buy the DVD of the motion picture called Network from 1976. Oh, yes. It predicted all of that's this. Correct. It laid out what is our reality back then it was considered a dark vision of the future in the same way that clockwork a clockwork orange was gotcha. uh, uh, the anthony burgess novel that was made into a by oh i'm just for, i just spaced on his name as stanley kubrick cool. it was a movie yeah. that that at the time was considered this incredibly dark vision of That's the future right. that was improbable at best 
Mm-hmm. And it all came true. It everything in a clockwork orange came became absolute reality. Which is all very it. scary. Terrifying stuff. I, it, it really is. And the same with the famous books, 1984, and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Things that were considered bizarre, impossible science fiction have become now everyday realities. Numbing ourselves on drugs to this kind of language where we all have to say certain words and can't say other words. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, craziness is that we are really, in a sense, devolving. I said before, I think some days I watch the news and I think the whole country has become one giant insane asylum. It's as if we're having a collective nervous breakdown. Maybe the only thing that will save us will be extraterrestrials, which may be why people so badly need them and want them. And they that's why we're getting those world. answers. We're getting those answers. I mean, you think yeah. about the things that people talk about like a six-year-old boy hugs a six-year-old girl yeah what do they do well they, they, they suspended him and they call the police and they and they could they, they do that with a little girl who's cutting her her steak sandwich with a, a knife in school she was arrested and had taken her, 10 years old felony charges of weapons possession because she used a knife to cut her steak this happened recently in Florida. I didn't hear about that. You cannot make this up. No, you can't make it up, no. Okay, I mean, you go around and they file lawsuits because you have a Christmas tree. That's right. Now, understand, I was brought up Jewish. David was. I have no problem with Christmas trees. Likewise. So what's this all about? Our society is collectively insane, and so we need the space people. We need something right. to come here and rescue us and say, hey, folks, you know, it's not Prozac that's going to cure you. It's <laughs> discovering yourselves, getting back no, to yourselves. This has taken us back to this idea that, and, you know, I've said this on the show as well, that essentially all of humanity are just a bunch of overgrown children. And this whole idea that we want to be saved by some external power, some paternal or maternal power, that they're going to make it all better, that we don't have to take responsibility for our own actions. I mean, ultimately, if there's anything that's going to destroy the species, and by the way, let's qualify this, destroy the species, but certainly not destroy the planet. We are not powerful enough to destroy this planet, folks. Everybody get a really big vanity check here. Okay? <laughs> we are not enough to destroy this planet. This planet will wipe us clean and start over with Twinkies. It doesn't need us. We have living Twinkies. We need this planet. The planet doesn't need us for squat. The planet was fine before we got here. It'll be fine after we leave. And that's another part of human vanity. It just kills me. We're going to destroy the planet. Oh, wake up. <laughs> I don't I, think that's... It's not. They turned off the Christmas lights in, a, in a Great Barrington, Massachusetts, because they said allegedly it was because they were helping the environment. That was going to help uh, global warming. Help us fight the problem. Uh, do you know how insane that is? The likely reason was they just didn't want to have Christmas lights because there are a lot of people who are secularists. You're talking about the Christmas tree. There's a, there's a, a lot of effort and a lot of stores to, to try to equalize things and to get religion out of our lives. The only thing that frightens me about that, and that's why I have a problem with, with a lot of the atheists or secularists, is because if you start the happy holiday business and if you don't have some guidelines and you get rid of religion, I said it before, what are you going to replace it with? You're going to trust each person's best instincts? Is everybody going to be good because they are inherently good? Or do they need the external rules? And most people need the rules. They need the Ten Commandments. They need to be told what to do. And this is what the Founding Fathers figured out also. And they were mystical people, by the way, as you well know. You mean those Freemason guys, the Freemasons? Well, they were Freemasons, sure. And Franklin was very open to reincarnation. The others speculated about life after death. 
people like uh, Jefferson and, and Adams, uh, there was uh, no question about it. They were open to what we call the paranormal. There are experiences that are alleged to have happened to uh, even George Washington at Valley Forge regarding a visionary experience he had. As I told you, I think, last year, we talked a little bit about the, uh, the presidential experiences with the paranormal. And almost every president or first lady has been touched somehow by a, a mystical or psychic or spiritual experience. But we're not supposed to talk about a lot of these things. We're programmed to not. And most societies, particularly totalitarian ones, will mark you as crazy if you talk about something that's not approved. Simple as that. And that's what's well, happening. That's one small step to Armageddon. 2019, the moon. A Soviet spacecraft found after half a century holds the darkest secret of the moon race and the hope of all humanity. Paul Levinson, the award-winning author of The Silk Code, writes, the novel Red Moon is a masterpiece, an adventure that you'll never forget. By David S. Michaels and Daniel Brenton. Available now at Amazon.com. Find out more at Luna15.com. That's L-U-N-A-1-5. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. One more session of about 18 or 19 minutes to spend with Joel Martin, best-selling author, David. So, Joel, now bring us to a current topic that I'm curious about your, your thoughts about. We'd like to know, what is your take on the incredible upsurge in popularity recently of a whole variety of programming dealing with paranormal topics. If you look at the American television scenario, you find tremendous number of shows, even to the extent where... And I assume, Gene, you heard about this. There's Sci-Fi Channel has commissioned a show called UFO Hunters, uh-huh. which would be pretty interesting. Uh, I'd like to see how big of a net they're going to use. But um, <laughs> what do you think about this, Joel? Do you think this is just basically serving an entertainment purpose? Do you think that people actually get anything out of these shows? What's your take on this? Well, from the network point of view, I mean, I'm a, I've been a waiter and a consultant to so many of those programs that I've done research and, and uh, even guest appearances on many, many of them for uh, 
least nine, ten TV networks. Mm-hmm. I can tell you their concern is the bottom line, as it has to be in, in you know in a free market economy. When and I can speak about this subject with great expertise because when I wrote We Don't Die, when we wrote that book in 1988, you couldn't get the subject touched in a serious way on a TV network if you stood on your head and wired them. I can tell you about shows without giving names particularly where literally reporters and anchors jumped up and down rather than have this subject on the program. I don't want to say his name because it wouldn't be right, but it rhymes with fossil. And there's a program on that particular network that rhymes with ABC. I'll give you one more clue. If you have perfect vision, you'll know the name of it. And this fella went berserk at the idea that George Anderson might be on demonstrating what he did not believe in, period. And so George was never on because they didn't want the subject on. Now what are they doing? Jump ahead a generation, you know, 20 years later. Mm-hmm. They've seen that people have this interest. They're not leading. They're not headlights. They're taillights. They're following the interest. And that's why all the networks are doing it. You can't name a network that hasn't touched the subject. It used to be that only Unsolved Mysteries did it. And when the X-Files became very popular, that really broke things open. And they realized that there was something really going on. George's popularity at the time immensely helped. The idea that uh, John Edward has his own show now and does very well, the, the medium, is because of, uh, you know, a lot of groundbreaking that went on years ago when a... Uh, particular expose network TV show literally, literally was after me to expose me as a fraud because of that book. And every word in that book was verified, it is true. Now, they're only too happy to do it. So, obviously, the, the consciousness has changed. People need the subject for whatever the reasons are that we spoke about, and the networks are responding to that. And uh, will the fad last if it's a fad? It'll probably last to the extent that there'll always be some variation of it. If anybody is silly enough to think that the paranormal or the interest in UFOs is going to disappear, they're really fools. It may lie dormant for a while. It you know may go into a cryogenic state. It may sit there like you know the raccoons do during the winter underground in semi-hibernation. But it's always going to be there because it is already hardwired into the brain. It's not going to change. It's more than a belief system, and people need it. Besides it being genuine, putting aside whether it is or it isn't, people need. They need to believe in something. They need to hold on to something, and they need to have some hope, which explains why. There is a tremendous interest in the afterlife. Always has been, always will be. Well, sure, it's one of the greatest mysteries humans face. But, Joel, here's the thing. I mean, you brought up John Edwards. I've watched him on TV. I think he's an absolute charlatan. Um, I put him in the same box as Sylvia Brown, who... I'd be very happy if a car hit that woman and put her out of commission. Well, it's not a nice way to treat a car, but I like Oh, (laughs) Well, the thing is that these people, I'll I'll say more about Sylvia than I will about Edwards, but these people are parasites. And so is it such that it's invariably going to be the the fact that you have a topic like this, you're going to have parasites like that? And how does a parasite like Sylvia Brown actually, I mean, besides the fact that Montel Williams gives her a constant platform. I also would like to see him, you know, get slapped around a little bit for that because what is this? Why do are there not enough legitimate interesting mediums that they have to turn to the Sylvia Browns? No, you raise a good question. There is no explanation, no explanation for her. Uh, I mean, she's in, in, a, in a class or a league that nobody can quite understand why she's on network television with her lack of ability and her 
arrogance and the number of errors she's made and her accuracy rate. No, she's hurt people, man. That's, that's right. The thing. That's, that, right. That's, that's the qualifier. She has hurt people. Like, yeah. look, how does a Montel Williams, maybe it's not the topic for this show, but I'm just wondering how people like this get on. And that, of course, will lead us right to something I know you have some thoughts about, which was a show that I had been watching a bit, was that Phenomenon show, Chris oh. Anthony Geller. Yeah, I just moaned. <laughs> What's the deal with that? What's we try to get Uri Geller on the show, and he's never responded to our emails. I guess we're not big enough for him. But no, I don't think it's that. I, I really don't. I, I don't think that's it. You will go anywhere that there's attention, or pretty much anywhere. Yuri is a man who it can be very charming. He's very bright and very quick. And he's a man who has an enormous, frankly, an enormous ego and sense of importance. And that's part of the answer to the Sylvia Brown problem. Because people who are assertive, people who have good uh, publicity agents, if you will, people who know how to market themselves well, can do extraordinarily well in a society that dwells on the kind of uh, pop culture and tabloid nonsense we do. Now, John Edward, I will tell you this, has been tested in uh, laboratory settings in terms of his accuracy and has tested quite well, actually, something in the vicinity of at least 80% accuracy, and that's by some objective scientists. So that's not necessarily uh, in any way a, a reason to disrespect or, you know, for me to, to criticize him because there have been objective tests of him. He's being put in a situation where on television it comes off kind of, you know, show businessy, and so I can understand what your concerns are. As for Sylvia Brown, your comment before, as I said, was totally inappropriate because I would not treat, uh, I wouldn't even treat a used car that way, let alone a new one. I mean, she's a disgrace. It's as simple as that. Well, I'll tell you what is working for her that keeps her alive. A, it's Montel Williams. She'll fold like a cheap camera once she's off air. And the appearances on that show, for whatever reasons they are, that only his head understands, she has been very successful with her books. Now, somebody is writing them, obviously, in her name, and those books that she's turned out, I think, 25 or 30 by now, have been very, very successful. They're easy for people to understand, and people are using them the way they used to use religion. People have lost confidence in religion. You pray to God, and uh, your prayers aren't answered. You see a scandal in the church. You are disappointed. You have to go somewhere, and now you look toward the paranormal because it gives you the promise of life after death, and her books read very easily about that. At the other end, in this country, at the other extreme, the other big growth industry that's pointed in the same direction, believe it or not, would be the evangelical movement. There's a tremendous, tremendous surge of popularity in that, and that has grown enormously because, again, people need contact with something that's larger than them that, as you said before, will be that great external power that will help them. It will heal them. It will comfort them. It will give them a reason, a purpose to live. And Sylvia Brown, I cannot explain. That's it's like rain falling upside down. I tell you, know, it's, <laughs> that, that to me is a, it's just an atrocity. You know? And if you're selling Sylvia, my name is David. Well, I don't I'm care. Sorry. You know what? She's, she's, I don't really care either. I think, I think it's an obscenity. I really do. I think the point is that there are people, and this is something, by the way, we see across all areas of paranormal research and hmm. interest. We see people who basically will just prey on the ignorance and oh, the sure. others. And I guess that's the other side, the very sure. important side of... Uh, well, well, you remember the 900 psychic phone line nonsense? Oh, Jesus. That, that was a disgrace. It hurts legitimate paranormal 
phenomenon. The, the Jerry Geller, too. I, I did not understand that show phenomenon. Here you had that punk magician sitting there. What, was his, what, what is his name? Chris Angel? Angel. Yeah, he, yeah he's sitting there. And he, he, I heard him say one night on a talk show. I forget if it was to Larry Kick. I, I don't recall who it was to. It was on one of the late night talk shows. I, whatever show it was, he said, no, everything you said on that show is, is a mentalist trick. It, it, it's all a trick. It, I don't believe in He said, I don't believe in psychic phenomena. And if anybody ever says they do, I'll let them have it good. And he, he said it. So he actually said one night on the Phenomena Show that what Yuri Geller did was a trick because somebody came on and was doing that bending metal business. And he said, oh, Yuri, you did that trick 30 years ago. Now Geller never was going to answer it. And Geller produced that show, the limited series they did called Phenomena. What does this tell us about Geller then ultimately? Oh, what, I, that's simple. That's kindergarten. You know what it tells us? Obviously, it tells us that there are people who want their fame to continue. There are people who want their 15 minutes of fame. And they'll go on shows, even if they, they look like jackasses. Just ask Gary Springer how easy it is to get people to go on and make fools of themselves. But in uh, Geller's case, he's a man of 60, and I'm not suggesting there's anything wrong with being 60, but I am suggesting that he wants to continue the fame he had in the 1970s, and he saw an opportunity for attention again at any cost. Now, he did that bending metal thing for me, and if it was a trick, it was the damn best trick I've ever seen in my life. Two of us were watching him with I if I tell you Hawkeyes you would not believe how close we were tell us about this experience I guess it's of interest you knew this man you interacted with him oh yeah oh sure yeah oh, a number of times sure what happened was I had him as a guest on the radio show this is back at the height of his fame doing what paranormalist book called psychokinesis in other words bending or moving objects with just right. the power of the mind and I gave him a ring of keys the keys I gave him were heavy industrial keys which I was sure he wouldn't be able to affect it wasn't one of these cheap house keys that you, you know you can bend with your fingers that melt if you look at it on a sunny day these were strong keys that were made to open studios and offices because at the time I was working at several stations what they call freelancing or as my father used to say the jackass of all trades and master of none so I had about a dozen heavy metal keys really and they're on a ring and I said will you bend the key for me on the show and he says yes of course and with that I pull out of my, my little uh, briefcase this ring of heavy keys he said all of those at one time I said can you he said I'll try all of them I swear to God to you as I'm sitting here every one of those keys bent the same way he barely moved his hand around them and those things started to curl I still have them just as uh, my colleague Margaret Went has her silverware which I had him do also same way. He barely touched the things. I had a broken children's watch. He made the thing run perfectly. It was overwound. It was an analog watch. You couldn't possibly get that prepared. It was just a cheap toy. He has that running. Now, if it was a trick, I'd like to know how it was done. It was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I had to believe something genuine was going on. But fighting his ability, which I believe to a great degree is probably accurate and, and genuine, is this enormous need to have attention, this enormous ego. Not everybody wants to be a television star or a movie star, although I love the media. I don't really like being seen. I love radio for that reason, even though I had a TV show for many years. I like the idea of, of the anonymity, I suppose. But there are people who want the attention. That's what fighting with him. In him, I think, are, are these two entities fighting, his ability and his ego. And I like the man.
I, I really do. I dated a woman before I married my second wife. This is 30 years ago, okay? And she told me of an experience where she believed none of this stuff, and she watched Yuri Geller on television at the time, and a spoon mm -hmm. bent in her hand. That's a common event. Now, I've been That's kind right. of of mixed feelings about him, right. and I wonder that maybe, and this may be true with a lot of people, he has some real ability, but sometimes when the real abilities don't show, he helps That's them right. along. I think it, you put it really right where it is. You're absolutely right. I think we are asking too much of these people. I think we're asking them to, to perform as if they were, you know, the trained monkeys. It would be as if you went to the best baseball player, no steroids, greatest athlete in the world, and you said every time a baseball player, every time you go up to bat, you're going to hit a home run. If you don't hit a home run, then you're not really a baseball player. Well, it's not going to happen. And I don't think psychic phenomena is that dependable. And I think you're absolutely right. I think there are anomalous events, and I think it is a very unpredictable, not very dependable source sometimes of, of activity. And when it doesn't work, you put these people on the spot, and they've got to fill in the spaces by doing whatever they have to do to create the illusion that they're always reopen. In fact, there's no way they can be. So you, I think you're completely correct. We only have a few minutes left, so maybe you can tell us you're working on any new books or other stuff that we can mention to our listeners. Well, I'm working on a, a great amount of material that has to do with the history of the paranormal and the past. And when you begin to see how the paranormal interacted in this country with the social movements of this country, the psychology, the politics, it's amazing. I mean, you see the influence it had even on presidents and on the, uh, the, the psyche of Americans, it's just extraordinary. So basically what I'm doing is researching the uh, events of the past so that we'll perhaps get a better grip on what they are and realize that this is not new, that what we're calling New Age or what we did call New Age, that a lot of these paranormal events are events, incidents, and whatever, phenomena that happened thousands of years ago. They're not new. They are as old as humankind. And so when you hear some debunker call it pseudoscience or talk about it as if somebody just invented it today or yesterday for television, you better read the Bible, the most psychic book in the world. You can read the Vatican documents if you can get your hands on some of them. You can read material from hundreds and thousands of years ago. You'll find it's uh, there. And the last point I'll make is that when we say, well, scientists don't believe in it, Einstein once wrote the introduction to a book about telepathy. Nobody, really, very few people know that. Isaac Newton, scientific genius that he was, was also very, very steeped in prophecy, astrology, and so forth. So, I mean, you have some of the brightest people in the world, many scientists, many doctors who say there is something beyond what we see. You can call it supernatural, but it's a bad word because it's not supernatural. We just don't know yet what it is, but it's there, and many scientists have agreed. But when you get somebody who has a secular agenda, who wants to take religion or any kind of spirituality out of your life and associates this with spirituality, so it's going to kill this to get to that, and doesn't tell you what it's going to be replaced with, well, you're setting yourself up for a very, very shaky society out of which will come another belief system that might be worse. <laughs> belief in chocolates. I'm officially starting the chocolate religion. <laughs> I am. I, 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 no, seriously, I, I'll go to that. I really would. I, I'm a chocolate addict. I have to admit it. I got a few people lined up for this one, and I okay. think it's got possibilities. It might be. It turns out that, that God is a, a great big uh, candy bar. I'm happy with that. I have no problem. <laughs> I'll tell you, ladies and gentlemen, next week we'll talk more about the God of chocolate. <laughs> Thank you, Joe Holmarden, for joining us this Thank week you. on the PowerCast. Thanks, Joe. Hail to Stop. chocolate. 
The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast. Paracast.